I have a friend who had an uncle that loved to play golf, and he wanted a partner to play with, and so he asked my, uh, asked my friend to go play golf with him, and he did, and after that he offered to buy him some golf lessons. That's real subtle, isn't it? <laughs> but my friend thought, hey, great, to get a free golf lesson or two, and what can be wrong with that? So he showed up for his golf lesson, brought his golf clubs with him, and the golf teacher looked at his clubs and he said, do you know what you have there? My friend said, well, my golf clubs. He said, no, no, those are a set of Ben Hogan signature golf clubs. He said, those are worth probably $5,000. He said some people would have those at home under glass and they wouldn't even touch them. So my friend went home and got the rest of the clubs out of the yard where the kids had been playing with them and gave serious thought to selling them and buying a car. I'm not sure we really realize what we have in the church. We know some things about the church, but there are parts of it, I think, that we don't fully grasp. And as we've been talking about conflict and reconciliation, there's an important element, <clears throat> important aspect of that in which the church participates. And we need to understand how significant the church is and, and what Christ has put into the church. And so we're going to uh, consider Matthew 18 and part of it today as we try to understand the part that the church must play in bringing reconciliation when there's been a conflict. From Matthew 18, please follow as I read starting in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek that one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear, take one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuse, refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, anything, on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst. In, to summarize some of what we've been learning, we understand that when it comes to conflicts, one of the things that either helps them to be diminished or makes them worse is how we talk. If we don't talk righteously, then we have two problems to deal with, the original conflict and the way that we have communicated. God tells us how to handle various things in our life, but he also says while we're working on it, our communication has to be godly. And he spells that out in great depth in the Bible. Number two, when we come into a conflict, we need to analyze that conflict from a biblical basis. 
a scriptural godly perspective, if we only resort to our own natural, reasonable, instinctual way of thinking, we will always see things in our own way. But if we stop and say, wait a minute, what does God's word say about what has gone on between the two of us? And what does God's word say about how I should handle it? To think through the conflict in a godly way is imperative. And number three, when confrontation is necessary, in other words, when a conflict has happened and I can't just let love cover it, it is bothering me and I have to work it through. When that happens, we are to go individually to the other person. I, I just want to re-stress this today. And I hope this doesn't sound flippant. But you know, when I was in junior high, if I had had the courage to like a girl, I would have never told her. I would have said, would you go tell that girl that I like her? Or maybe would you tell him and have him tell her? Maybe I'd give you a note. You know, do you like me? Yes or no? And when you go and you give her the note, you get the answer and you come back, okay? But I would never talk to her in person. I heard a term recently that I think is one of the most mm, pregnant terms I've ever heard. He's a full-grown adolescent. Full-grown adolescents never talk in person. They always go through somebody else. And God says, don't be a full-grown adolescent. He said, if there's a difficulty, man up. And just go and say, brother, sister, I'm not sure if something's wrong, but I heard this, I saw this, whatever it is. Can we talk about this? And we've talked in previous weeks about how we go and how we need to be humble and so on. But we've got to go straight because you know what? Let's just say I write that note and I hand it and hand it and hand it. But I never really hear. Has that person changed? What's their attitude about what went wrong? I don't know. Maybe they changed. Maybe they repented. Maybe they got down on their knees and said, God, I've been wrong. But I never heard that. I didn't get the privilege of knowing that God used me to help them. And I didn't get the joy of knowing this is a good brother, this is a good sister. Because I still have this lingering thought. Because I wouldn't do what God said to do in Matthew 18, which is, go talk to him. Number three, if they refuse to admit they're wrong, if, they are, if, if, if you believe they're wrong and they won't talk about it, they won't admit they're wrong, then we are to take another godly person or two, according to this, to help with the confrontation. Number four. Number five, if they refuse to listen to the two or three, then God says we are to enlist the church in the confrontation. He doesn't say if they won't listen to two or three that you are to excommunicate them or take them out of the church. He says you are to enlist the church in the communication, in the confrontation. And so I want to ask this question today. 
Why should the church be involved in the confrontation? And I think the answer is quite significant. And frankly, I was struck myself by God's word this week in ways that I haven't been before in realizing what the church is. Number one, we should get the church involved in a confrontation when people won't respond to one or two people because Christ leads the church. What's another term for the church in the Bible, class? Say that again. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. God has put all things under Christ's feet and given Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body. Paul says it with a different word order, but the same meaning here in Colossians. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. Colossians chapter 1 says it again. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before, or number one, before all things. And in Him everything holds together. And He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, what does this say about bringing the church into conflict? Here's what it says. If Christ is the head of the church, I mean, the, the image that's being drawn by God is of a body, and so the head, what does the head have inside? The brain, the thoughts, the control over everything. If Christ is the head of the church, in fact, let's just back up a minute. That scripture tells me that Christ holds the world together. Scientists are doing research in Switzerland to try to find the God particle. What is it that holds together the electrons and the protons and the neutrons in their, in their atomic form? Why do they keep going around and around in these predictable ways? We've got to figure it out. Well, Colossians says we've already figured it out. It's Christ holding it together. Now, if Christ does that, can't he lead the church? Or is the church just on its own, willy-nilly, doing all kinds of crazy things, and is so stupid they can't get involved in a reconciliation? You know, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about two brothers or sisters in a church who have a financial difficulty, and he says, don't you dare go out to a secular court. He says, don't you know that you're going to sit in judgment on angels? In other words, Christ is the head of the church. If he can give wisdom to hold the world together and judge the angels, he can give wisdom for a financial difficulty. We've got to ask ourselves a question. Do we believe Christ is leading the church or not? Is it a random chance event that this church has been together and had a biblical belief system for 125 years? Is that just a random chance event? Or has Christ been leading the church? 
Now, I understand that there are, the Scripture talks both about the universal church, which is all Christians of all time, but it also talks about the local church. And clearly, Christ is here talking about the local church because he says, if somebody won't listen, you need to talk to them. And if they won't listen to them, then you need to get them to the church. The church needs to confront. Obviously, he's talking about a local body of believers. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present Christ leads the church so that his will is done in the world. Now, churches can fail to do Christ's will. There's no doubt about that. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about a failure of that church to do God's will. They had sin going on in the church, and instead of going to the brother and saying, that's wrong, they were kind of going, oh, aren't we sophisticated? The Bible says they were proud, which means somehow they thought it was cool that this guy was living in this terrible sin. And the only way they could have thought that is if they thought, well, we're just like the world, we're really cool. Can the church be wrong? Absolutely. But when they're wrong, the standard is clear. And so we can't just wipe it away and say, well, you know, we can never tell if we're following God's will or not, and so I don't have to do what they say. Listen, if we are acting within the parameters of Scripture, Christ is leading. And that's an important aspect of dealing with conflict and reconciliation. It's also an important aspect of dealing with how do we do God's work together. We can be led by Christ if we're following His Word. And if we're doing that, then the individuals within the church need to say, you know what, this is the body of Christ. This isn't just a bunch of people that walk in the door at 5759 Vista Drive. This is the body of Christ, and I need to respect it as the body of Christ. Because he is leading the church. Number two, why should the church be involved in confrontation? Because Christ has invested the church with power. Christ has invested the church with power. Turn back a page or so in your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The phrase Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel, and it was a reference to the Messiah who would come, who would conquer the world. Jesus used that term the majority of the time to speak of himself. Who do, who do, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And what that means is John the Baptist had been beheaded, and he died, and so we think you are the resurrected John the Baptist. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. You're the resurrected Elijah from the Old Testament. Others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Spiritually truth is spirit, spiritual truth is spiritually understood. 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I'm going to build the church on you, Peter. He said, you are Peter, you are a stone, and I am going to build my church on this huge outcropping of rock. What was the outcropping of rock? It was the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The basis of this church, this is a Christian church. Key word there is Christ. And so the key concept is, who is Christ? He is the Son of God who took on human flesh and died on the cross for our sins. Not only that, but in using the term the Christ, it is the Greek word for the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word Messiah. You are the promised one who was to come and be our Savior. That is the foundation of the church. Now what happens to the church founded on that confession, living out that confession in the Scripture? What does that church, what is the limitation on that church according to this verse, these verses? What's the limitation? What? None. It says the gates of hell cannot prevail. In the time in which the Bible was written, the common way to wage warfare was to attack another city and conquer that city and then and because all the people who lived around were connected to that city and the way it would go of course is is if uh, you know if I was in charge of the army of Ferndale and we said we're gonna conquer Custer well then in Custer they would have a city square they would have this this big uh, uh, stone wall all around the city and and if they heard that we were coming to attack they would all they would leave their little farms and run to the city and run inside and close the gate. And we would come from the outside and attempt to breach the gate and go in and conquer them. Read this with me again. Verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, when we talk about spiritual warfare, we always think that the devil is the one prosecuting the war. He's not. He's the one in the walled compound trying to keep from being run over. And you know what you have to do to fight the devil? This is so simple. I don't know why people write so many books about quote-unquote spiritual warfare. You know what you have to do to beat the devil? Keep going forward. Because when the gates are there, you just keep going forward. Because even though there's a gate, it cannot stop you. It was great to get word last week from Helen Steele that the Greek Bible Institute, while we were there in Greece, the president of that school told me there's one Bible Institute in the whole, or Bible college one college teaching the Bible in all of Greece. You can go to the Ukraine, former Soviet Union, there's a dozen. In Greece, there's one. The New Testament is written in Greek, for crying out loud. There's one Bible college. He said, this is the devil's territory, and he does not want to give up. The government says, you can't have a you can't have a school there. Yeah, you've been there for a long time, but the zoning is wrong. And so what do we do? We pray, we pray, and they keep doing their thing. And we pray, and they keep doing their thing. And pretty soon the, the, the government says, 
well, we think maybe we're just going to forgive all those zoning problems. The gates of hell cannot prevail. And we need to remember that this is part of the power structure of God in the world. I understand that Christ is in me, the Holy Spirit is in me, but this is God's organism to take his ministry to the world. Christ did not say that individual Christians would overcome the gates of hell. He did not say that man-made affinity organizations of Christians would overcome the gates of hell. He did not say that governments would overcome the gates of hell. He said that the church, his body, would be so endued with his power that our forward movement would not be overcome despite the defensive gates of hell. When you have a conflict that cannot be resolved, you ought to be running to the church. Because this is the place where the power is. And it's not because of me. And it's not because of our elders. It's because this is the body of Christ. Founded on the word of God, living within the word of God. And as such, Christ says, there is nothing that can stop you. I bought a new table saw a couple of years ago. And when Raul came over and looked at it, he, he said, you know, this is very powerful and it will shoot pieces of wood. You have to be very careful. He's worked in professional shops and, and he basically said, do you know what you have there? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. And you know, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did lose my thumb in a table saw, you know. I got a short one on that one side. But I'm sure I can handle this. But you know when I really understood about the table saw? is when it shot a piece of wood across the room. <laughs> and it went kabam into the wall and made a big noise. And I went, oh boy, I'm glad I wasn't standing in front of that. It's very powerful. I don't think we, I don't think we have a mental image of the church as powerful. And it's not because it isn't. It's because we haven't taken Christ seriously. We have the power of Christ to do His work in the world and not be stopped by Satan or his demon throng. That means that every godly, godly action we undertake is full of God's power to accomplish His will, including restoring someone to righteousness. We shouldn't hesitate to get involved when we need to because we say, you know what? This is God's business and this is God's body and, and if we act in accordance with the Scripture, God will work. One of the things that we don't always grasp is that God has not all only ordained the ends but also the means now, what do I mean by that? One of the chief things that we struggle with sometimes is prayer. We think, well, why do I need to pray? The Scripture tells me God already knows what I need. Here's why. Because God said, I'm going to provide your needs. And he also said, pray for the things that you need, the end and the means. God said that the body of Christ should exist in unity. That is the end that he wants. And the means 
to get there at times means that the church has to be involved in that conflict. Why should the church be involved in the confrontation? Because Christ has invested his church with authority to judge. Turn back to Matthew 18, please. Matthew 18, 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I say that if two or three of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, these verses have been terribly corrupted by some people who would tell you, you know what, if you just get a couple of people to agree with you, then God has to do whatever you pray for. Well, that's just silly, okay? Because the key defining phrase here is in verse 20, in my name. The question we have to ask in all of this is, are we doing something in God's name or are we doing something just for our own personal enrichment, so to speak? And so that, that's a, a key qualifier. But here's what he says in verse 18, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed. Um, the word loose means to be set free. The word bind probably has the best understanding of obligation. In other words, if you tell somebody you are free of the obligation, they're free. If you tell them, no, if you have an obligation to do certain things, there is a binding obligation on them. But the verb tense is what's really interesting here. He says, if you bind something, it will have already been bound in heaven. If you loose something, it will already have been loosed in heaven. Now, if we put that all together, we understand something like this. We are to make judgments in, within the parameters of the Scripture, in the way Christ would make them, in His name, and for the glory of Christ. And if we do that, then the reality is God has already agreed with that judgment in heaven, and we ought to feel His blessing as we go forward with that judgment. Now, what do I mean by judgment? What I mean is, There are times when people refuse to acknowledge their sin. Brother last week talked to me and I asked him if I could share his story and, and he said I could and I'll just share it in the, in the most obscure manner. His brother was living in sin, clear, plain sin. And uh, he was confronted by family and friends and by his church, and he refused it, refused it, refused it. Was their judgment right? Absolutely right. And that's what God is talking about. God is saying, listen, when you look at a situation and you say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, because we're based in the Scripture, God in heaven goes, yes! And so they kept confronting this brother, and so you know what he did? said, I'm going to another church. Of course, God didn't take his finger off. And eventually this brother got right with the Lord and he says, man, you know, back then I had everything in life but no joy and peace. And now 
I am right with the Lord and I got nothing in life, but I'm full of joy and peace. And I'm being restored to my family. We have not only the right, but the obligation to make judgments. What if his church had said, well, I, I know what you're doing isn't really the best, but you know, everybody in the world's doing it. So don't, don't worry about it too much. Is it possible that we encourage people to sin when we don't say, that's wrong? We have a responsibility to say that it's wrong. That's what happened here in 1 Corinthians 5. It's reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Such immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and you've not rather mourned. That's talking about the body of Christ that you should be mourning because of this individual that he's done, he might be taken away. For I indeed is absent, but present in spirit have already judged. The Apostle Paul said, I don't even need to come. If this man is living this way, I can pass judgment. It's wrong. That is so counterintuitive to our American society. Oh, don't, don't be judging me. Don't be judging me. We talked about that a few weeks ago. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you get together along with my spirit, in other words, I'm lending my blessing with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whoa. Do you know that in some church organizations or denominations, what they say is, when a person refuses to repent and they have to put them out of the church, they declare them to be an unbeliever. Ooh. Are you telling me that according to the Scripture we could look and do that? Well, that might be going a little too far. I'm not sure. But you know what? God says the church considers the facts looks at the situation and says, that's wrong, you need to repent. Now, one of the real problems with this in America is we have been infected by, quote, all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And nobody better get in my way while I'm pursuing and that comes right over into the church. And we look and say, you can't tell me what to do. And God says, yes, we can. We have the right and the responsibility based on God's word to evaluate and to make a pronunciation to say that is wrong and it's got to change. A quote from Ken Sandy who wrote the book Peacemakers He's a lawyer who has a ministry of reconciliation. He personally now only gets involved in really significant, large Christian disputes, but his organization works in all kinds of things. As with the decision of secular arbiters, arbitrators, the church's opinion is intended to be binding on its members, whether the party likes it or not. As Matthew 18 teaches, the church speaks with the authority of Christ himself when it acts pursuant to its biblical mandate to deal with sin. 1 Corinthians 6 indicates that this authority extends not only to personal issues, but also to material issues. 
The only time a Christian may properly disobey his church is when its instructions are clearly contrary to what the Scripture teaches. Why should the church be involved in confrontation? Number four, because God has invested the church leadership with authority. Uh, listen to this beginning of, of leadership in the church. And he himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The reason there are spiritual leaders, there is an office called pastor or elder, is because Christ set it up. There are three words used in the New Testament to indicate the office of spiritual leadership in the church. One is the word pastor or shepherd. One is the word bishop or overseer. And one is the word elder. And this text right here brings them all together. The elders who are among you. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly. All three of these refer to the same office, whether a person is paid to do this full-time like I am or is, a, uh, as we use the term, lay person, a volunteer like Chet or Jim. Uh, the, the same thing holds true for all. And, and, the, and the two verses that are the hardest to preach are these. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Do you know why 1 Timothy 3 says elders are supposed to be exemplary people before you recognize them? Because God expects you to follow them on the basis of the outcome of their life. Now, do you understand why that's really hard to preach? Because that's me standing up here saying, look at my life, and if it's righteous, then follow. That's not comfortable. Okay? Because I know my imperfections pretty well. And I would not stand here and tell you that I'm a perfect example. I would much rather have you look at my kids and say, all my kids are walking with the Lord and they all married godly people. And I say, see, I must have done something right. Friends, Jim Hively has a, a wonderful family. I don't know his imperfections because I haven't lived with him. We traveled to Greece for a week together. He was perfect that whole week. Does he have any imperfections, Melanie? <laughs> Chet, where are you? Where are you, Chet? Raise, there. <laughs> they have a lovely family. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he's not perfect because he's still breathing. Okay? I don't like, I don't like to preach this, but you know what happens when you don't follow the people that the head of the church has caused to be set up to be leaders in the church? See, that's the thing we've got to stop and say, wait a minute, is Christ the head of the church? Was he sleeping when these guys got elected? And, and that authority trickles down. 
I believe also to other spiritual authorities. If you're a, if you're a child in a Sunday school class, your teacher didn't get there by accident. And you need to submit yourself. You need to follow. Look at the rest of this. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I urged you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to everyone who works and labors with us. Would you look at this last part of this phrase? Let them do so with joy and not grief. I could tell you stories for hours about people who walked away from God's way and shipwrecked their lives. I don't take that personally, but I grieve over it personally because God has said, Dave, it's your job to take this, not my opinions, and try to help people walk with the Lord. I am not a leader I am not a leader because it suits me. I will tell you for a fact that these two men are elders only because we said, we believe God has called you. Neither one of them volunteered, and both of them said, I'm just not sure. And I know for a fact when God called me into the ministry that I came in with the rope tied around my waist being pulled and my hands weren't on it. But I know that I do what I do to help you walk with Christ. I don't like preaching this, but I know that when people don't follow godly leaders, trouble ensues. What if you are following the blind guide? We've got to be godly, but there's got to be following and leading. You know, I was pastor in a church when I was 27 years old, and that's a scary thought. Uh, my son looks over at me. We're driving down the street and looks over at me and says, You're the boss of the church, aren't you, Dad? I said, Oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. How do you explain to a three-year-old the difference between being a leader and a boss? You know, I tried the best I could. I'm not the boss of the church. Jim is not the boss of the church as the chairman of the elders. Chet is not the boss of the church. We are not the boss of the church, but we have a responsibility to Christ. If we don't do what Christ expects of leaders, two things will happen. And the first is this. If we don't lead, we will fail Christ. Shepherd the flock of God. Be the person who is leading and calling to God's people. Shepherd the flock of God as which is among you, serving as an overseer or a manager, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, 
nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The term that has been coined based on this verse is the term under-shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. And what that means is someday you're all going to stand in front of the Lord and answer for what you did. I have to stand in front of the Lord while he reviews what I did with you. And so will Jim, and so will Chet, and so will every other man who's been an elder in this church. And thankfully, I believe it's going to be a, an evaluation of reward. But if I don't lead, if we don't lead, Christ is going to look at us and say, you, you missed an opportunity there, and did you see how these people walked astray? Bad enough to be responsible for your own life, much, much less a couple hundred other people. We have got to lead or we will fail Christ. And number two, we have got to lead or we will fail you. Listen to what Paul said to the elders of Ephesus when he was about to leave them. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd of the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this. That after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. The Apostle Paul talked to the elders eye to eye, and he said, You know what? I've been here, and, and everybody knows I'm an apostle, and God has done miracles, and so on, and so I'm quite a force to be reckoned with. I speak the word of God, I write the word of God, and so people don't fool with me too much. Do you see that in there? That's what it says. That's what's going on. He says, look, I'm going to leave and you're going to be in charge. And clearly, he knew that when it was them in charge and not him, people would say, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for that apostle to get out of here because I have some other ideas or I don't like this or I don't like that. And he said, savage wolves are going to come in. You know what that means? What that means is Paul said, listen, guys, be on your guard because if you're not, things are going to go sideways in a hurry. The church of Christ cannot function in a godly way without spiritually mature men taking the lead in all things, including the confrontation and reconciliation of erring members. And that's why the church should be involved in confrontation. God, Christ is the leader. He's given us power. He's given us authority. He's vested the leadership with authority. We have got to work under Christ to help people walk in the Lord. Back in the day when I was a, a volunteer firefighter, uh, one day I was at church, Sue was at church, I don't know if it was after a church service, something like that, and, and pager went off and I headed to the car, as I usually did back in the day when I still could run, and I would, I assume, would go off there. And the guy standing next to Sue said, wow, he really takes that seriously, doesn't he? That's when you want to say, uh, yeah, somebody's house is burning down. Somebody's having a heart attack. Yeah, takes that seriously. Hello? 
God takes sin seriously. He takes the unity of the body of Christ seriously. He takes his word and his way of life seriously. He takes it so seriously that he has infused us with himself, his power, his authority, his leadership. And he expects us, his body, to take sin so seriously that we don't rest until it's dealt with. What about you, friend? Do you take sin seriously in your own life? Do you take it so seriously that you have believed in Christ and received the forgiveness of sins? Do you take sin so seriously as a Christian that you work at reconciliation and restoration and helping people walk with the Lord and making sure you have good relationships? God wants us to take sin seriously. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh, help your word to be preached this morning. I don't want to be the boss of the church, and I don't want Jim or Chet or us. But, Father, we've got to lead, and we've got to follow your lead, and we want to be more sensitive to that than we've ever been. Because lives are at stake, help us, Father. Help us to walk in the way you want us to walk as a church, as part of the body of Christ. I pray in his name, amen.